We're back in the uh, book of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 4 is where we are again today. And I've been kind of amazed at how well the, some of the things have kind of just come together. God often does that, you know, but the, the subject that we have here really of last Sunday and this Sunday as well really jives quite well with what Graham has been doing in the adult Sunday school class. And it's just kind of all together sort of a similar topic on the essence of evangelism, the essence of evangelism and real biblical evangelism, praying for the lost. And um, so even yesterday at our men's breakfast, that was the topic in the first eight verses of First Timothy chapter 2, where we camped on those eight verses, and it exhorts us so strongly to pray for the lost, people who do not know Christ or don't understand and or may be interested but really haven't come all the way to understand that we need to be in prayer about that. And so we talked about that yesterday. And my, may I encourage you, um, if you didn't see on the bulletin table, there's also just a, a sheet of paper there that's uh, printed up, and it says on there, How to Pray Evangelistically. It's a very good piece of paper with a number of important verses on how to pray evangelistically and a place for you to put down the names of some people who need Christ at the bottom for you to pray for. It doesn't happen unless we pray and God responds. Well, let's pray as we look at the word this morning, shall we, briefly? Father, we do thank you for the day again today as we, uh, as we come to the word, uh, settle our minds and settle our hearts to be listening. We might listen to hear your spirit work in our lives and listen to hear the word and how it works in our lives too, we pray. May that be the case, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, as we're in chapter 4 now, if you remember, this is Christ. He's, he's starting his year of opposition in ministry. Things are not going to be going so well from here on. Very popular earlier on, but this is not the case now. And the disciples um, are still with him, but many people are not necessarily with him, even though they followed him all over the place, and the crowds have grown from, from dozens to hundreds to thousands in his ministry, but there are some of those who are opposite or opposed to him now as well. And so now he begins to speak in parables. And last week we looked at the parable of the soils. It's not the parable of the sower, it's really about the soils there. I just want to review that a minute because it really sets the tone for what we will do today. We will look at three parables today, but want to just review for a moment this parable of the soils. Remember, there were four different types of soils. Number one was the compacted soil. Mentions it in verse 3. And the Lord says, listen. He's talking about expository listening, not preaching, but listening there. And he talks about a sower that went out to sow, and he sowed the seeds, and they went on, on soil that was compacted because people walked on it. And then Satan comes and takes it away takes the word away, so we know the word is the seed. The word is the seed there. That's important for today, too. The second type of soil was kind of a, a rocky, uh, shallow type of soil where the, the seeds went in, fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up. And, and these picture people who have some kind of quote-unquote religious reaction to things, the truth, the scripture. But the sun came up and the soil was scorched and it died and so forth and it withered away. So it says in verse 16 there that they, they had received this, the word or the seed, you could say, with joy, 
these were the people that were like that, but they had no firm root in them, and it was only temporary, it says, and affliction, persecution came along, and they fell away. That's soil number two. The third soil is in verse seven, the thorny soil. And in that particular case, there were lots of thorns, and um, they planted the seed, it came up, but the thorns came up faster, which thorns tend to do, and so it choked it out, and it did not yield a crop. No crop, no fruit came from that at all. And the application, or the interpretation, is about the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches that affects people and causes them to turn the other way and they just get all choked up about it like the seed was choked by the thorns. And they become, quote unquote, unfruitful in verse 18 it says. And then there's the fourth type of soil. This is the good soil. Three were bad, one is good. The good soil, verse 8, says uh, other seeds fell by the good soil and they grew up and uh, they yielded Lots of fruit, just lots of it, 30, 60, and 100-fold, way more than the average yield of any crop, is what Jesus is saying here. And of course, the interpretation is in verse 20, that these are the ones who, whose seed was sown on the good soil. The soil is the heart in all of this. Remember, the soil is the human heart. The human heart was ready and accepted it, and they hear the word, they are expository listeners, and they accept it, and they bear fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. Of course, the question we asked ourselves last week, what kind of soil is my heart? What kind of soil is my heart? The first three are really like people who, in some of the cases, really appear to be converted, but it's false conversion. They fall away. They drop out. They're no longer interested. And um, the last one, though, is that which is ready and accepted, and, and the, the word has its impact on the person. It's not that it didn't have its impact in the others, but other things came and spirited it away and so forth. So which soil are you? That's a good thing to think about in the parable of the soils. Jesus is using the soils now, and he's using these parables in these, uh, the soils in these parables now, because parables are a little bit cryptic. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a story that, from real life, that pictures a truth, like uh, spiritual truth. It's to come alongside, parabola is the Greek word, para means to come alongside. But anyway, anyway, um, there are those soils, but there's more to it as we look a little bit farther, but people sometimes say, they question the whole thing. They say, well, look, God is the one who predestines us or he elects us. What's the use? He does it all, so I have no choice in the matter, and they just kind of bail out on Christianity, on Christ, and so forth with that in mind. Now, I, I talked to the guys about it at our breakfast uh, yesterday, and let me say the guys are very responsive. We have a, probably our biggest group we've ever had, and we're going to have to find another church to do it in pretty soon <laughs> if it grows, but I'm thankful for that. But we talked about, we talked about that whole issue. What about, says God elects and he predestines and all this, but yet man is, man is responsible. You see that in these things all kind of woven together. I like what Charles Spurgeon had to say. If you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, he's probably considered to be the greatest preacher of the last century. 
And um, he said this, that God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see, especially new Christians. I think it's hard for them to understand that. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other if then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for his actions, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for his actions, ooh, excuse me, the truth can never, can, can never contradict itself. That is true. Both sides of the coin there. And uh, he says, I, I, uh, the two truths I do not believe can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil. So there's a two truth that seem to be opposite. Now I like what he says just a little bit far, far down the page there. He says, there are some brethren with small heads. Uh, you know Spurgeon liked to say things like that and he's always a little humorous. Who, when they have heard a strong doctrinal sermon grow into hyper-Calvinists, and then when we preach an inviting sermon to poor sinners, they cannot understand it and say, it is a yes and a no gospel, believe me. It is not yes and no, but yes and yes. We give your yes to all truth, and our no we give to no doctrine of God. It doesn't go to any doctrine of God. All God's doctrines are yes and yes. Yes, it's Christ. And if he does come, does he come because God brings him? Yes, and we have no no's in our theology. He goes on to say that. But I think he says it in a good way. And uh, it makes us think just a little bit about the fact that we don't understand how those things all come together. And I've always explained it that in the sunset, we'll see it, we'll understand it. There's lots of things we don't understand in the Bible, but we believe it because God said it. And that settles it, we often say. Don't understand the Trinity totally. We don't understand totally salvation. We don't understand lots of things about eternity, but if it's there, it's a yes, and it's a yes. So God chooses, but we still have to repent. And if we're convicted that maybe God working on our heart, this is a yes and a yes truth that we have here. And in these parables, you have things like that with three that sort of picture that which was... Uh, not very fruitful or not fruitful hardly at all. And yet God was the one that gave the word to them. And then, of course, we have the one that is very fruitful in the end. So this is a yes and a yes scene. So the scene we have today now is going to be in verse, starting in verse 21. Verse 21, Jesus is still on the water, the Sea of Galilee, and crowds have massed around him. But since he started uh, preaching in parables, he did that because many in the people of crowds weren't really interested in the truth. They were really only interested in the miracles, in the show that they saw there, in what he could do for them. And so he decided that he would preach in parables because that's slightly um, cryptic and they wouldn't perhaps be able to understand it because they weren't interested in the first place. And so many of them left, it says, at that point. But his disciples did have questions and they did want answers and they did get those answers as he taught them. So the thousands went away and the hundreds went away and perhaps it was down to 
maybe dozens or so, we don't know, but it's a smaller group. It very clearly says that. And there are three parables for us to look at this morning. And the first one is in verse 21 through 25. So please follow with me or follow with me on the screen and try to grasp, take some notes on this for your salt groups uh, this week. This one is the parable of the lamp that light, the light lamps. Now I have a little lamp right here. This is kind of what it's talking about. These are typical um, little um, lamps that are clay lamps. They come from Israel. In fact, these come from um, Nazareth where uh, Jesus grew up, right there. And they typically have a little bit of, uh, and though I didn't dig them out of the soil, they make their modern ones that are made, so, but they're for the tourists. But anyway, it's made out of clay and uh, it's a little thing, you just pour some oil inside of there and uh, then there's a little, little hole right there and a little wick inside. You can't see it because it's kind of stuck in there. And then you light the wick and, and uh, there's a little wick right there as you can see. And I'll put those up there as kind of an example of what we're talking about today. And it provides light. That was how they lit their homes. It is the um, special kind of lighting like we have today. That's what they had in that day there. That's an LED light. It's a little light, that's what the L stands for. Anyway, anyway, so the parable of the lamps here and the lamps that are the lit, it's a lamp that's lit up and it has something to do with God's plan. It says in verse 21, and he, that's Jesus, was saying to them. It just kind of goes from one parable, the big parable, to the small parables. He was saying to them, a lamp is not brought um, to be put under a basket, is it? or under a bed. It's not brought to be put, but it is brought to be put on a lampstand. So in, in some cases, a lamps would always be in a little stand, kind of like the little stand sometimes we have for flowers out there, and um, there'd be things put on the side here. It would be put up there so it could be a place for the lamp to shine its light throughout all of the room and so forth. And um, it's not to be put under a basket. Sometimes they put it under a basket or under a bed. Some Bibles uh, will also say there too. But that's not the place where they really go. Is, is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? Of course it is. It's, it's meant to be on a lampstand like this pulpit is a stand so it can be seen. Seems like kind of a, kind of a, a no-brainer. But his disciples would understand and they would begin to apply this and they were asking questions about that. What, what was Jesus talking about? In verse 22, he says, For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. So, if something is going to be hidden for a while, it's probably precious. That's why it would be hidden for a while. But it's meant to be revealed eventually. It's meant to come to light so people can see it. Gold, silver, precious stones, uh, those kinds of things may be hidden for a while when they come to light. They're very valuable, they're precious. And um, the point being here that what the disciples are being given is very precious, and it's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. So we must not hide the Word of God is sort of an implication that comes out of this. We must not hide the truth about Christ under a basket or under a bed or under some kind of thing that hides it so no one can see it. 
And, and if we do that, then we miss the whole point of what we're here for. What we're here for is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Great Commission is about proclamation of the gospel for the glory of God. That's the higher end of it. It's not for just a lot of people in the church, that kind of thing, but it's so that God might be glorified. We talked about that Christmas Eve. If you missed that, you might want to go back and check that out on the live stream. So it's very important that we see that we don't have a fortress mentality, that it's just us four no more, and uh, we don't want anybody outside the church. Some churches tend to get that way. I know of some where... I don't think I want those people to come in because they look funny, they dress funny, they act funny, and let them stay outside the church. We may even shy away from witnessing to people like that. Uh, for example, the man that wrote me the letter that I read last week who was in prison, and I bought him, we bought him the Bible. And incidentally, I had so many people offering to buy Bibles after last Sunday's sermon for this man. I, I didn't know what to do. We did find out that uh, there's a very specific way the prison system allows the Bibles to come through, but he will get at least one good Bible, if not several. It's, uh, it's happening. So we don't want to have a fortress mentality or a siege mentality. We lock all the doors and just let the enemy pound on the walls and the doors and the windows and so forth, but we don't want him to come in here because it's just our group here and we just want to fellowship with ourselves and we want to know our friends and this and that and the other thing. We really don't want anything to do with you. It's too many people. That's a siege mentality. That's a fortress mentality. And let's just stay small because I like small churches because they're homey, you know. But Christ called us to put the light out, not to cap it, put it out in that sense, but to spread the light. Oh, you, you all know I come from a lighthouse background and work that, and it always brings that to mind. I don't want to bring it up too much, but it's very important that the lighthouse be up on a platform of some sort. It's very important to be up on a tower, and it's very important to be seen by all those. That's the idea. That's the way the gospel is. That's the intent for it. And even though the gospel as it was being understood in the first century, it was always there in some sense, even in the Old Testament, but now it becomes fully, fully understood in Christ. We don't want to be in a holy huddle. You know, that's the us for no more kind of thing. So, of course, in the greater context of the parable of the soils, which we looked at a minute or two ago, we know that the most valuable thing is the word of God. We should hold the word as so valuable as to give it to all those that we can around us. I'm talking about the gospel and, and not just the book, but in America, many people have Bibles, but they don't know what's in them. We have a great dearth of biblical illiteracy in our country today. So then in verse 23, Jesus says, after just saying that, he says, if anyone has ears, let him hear. There's that expository listening coming through. That's a theme throughout these parables. Let him hear. If you've got an ear, listen to what I'm saying is what he's, is what he's saying here. And um, I just think it's very important that we pay attention. Are you, are you listening this morning? Someone said that an eager mind may hear a barren sermon 
and still get something out of it if his mind is eager, if he's listening. But a sermon full of truth and light may fall upon deaf ears also, and they don't hear anything even though it's full of truth and light. People who don't get something out of the sermon generally blame the preacher. But lots of people got nothing out of Jesus' sermons. And they fled away. So it's not always the sermon. I'm not saying that every sermon is perfect. But God can use things in an unusual way. We need to have listening ears. Listen up. Verse 24. He was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. Kind of elaborates on that. Be careful what you're listening to. Just don't listen to anything. I think we, we have some discretion in our listening. Kind of a double emphasis here from verse 23 and verse 24. So he's making the point very clearly that we need to be good listeners. How good of a listener are you? Or do you just talk? We always should be good listeners. I just really came across an interesting seminar I went to one time when I was in Bible college, and um, the seminar was about a number of things in Sunday school for leaders, and so part of it was learning to be a good listener, and they had a little, little thing that we did, and we did it with each other that was in this group, and then we came back, and then the trick was that we were being tested to see how good of listeners we were. And it kind of touched me, and I realized I could do better at that. So I came home that day, and dinner was ready, and we just had small children down in Salem at the time. And, I, and Nancy was putting the dinner on the table, and I said, Honey, how did the week go, you know? And how did the day go, I mean? And, oh, this looks really good. Where would you get the recipe on this kind of thing I was talking about? And how are the kids doing? And, so forth, and I went on asking questions, and I didn't offer anything really much about what I had done during the day. And then I said, did you notice anything different about my conversation? She said, yeah, I wondered what was wrong. <laughs> you know? So I suddenly was convicted about my own inability to <laughs> listen, and I learned a little bit. But that's what Jesus is saying here. His disciples were those who probably didn't always listen quite so well. Didn't listen. So uh, we come down to verse 24, and he was saying to them, he's talking about listening, and then he's talking about saying something to them. Take care of what you listen to. And then the verse continues. It says, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and the more will be given to you besides. So if, you are, if you're careful about what you listen to and you're really putting your mind in it and you're getting a lot out of it, you're going to be blessed even more in the end. And then in verse 25, he says, For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And to whoever does not have, that's those who probably don't really listen or pay attention. And we see that in those first three soils of the parable of the soils. Whoever does not have even what he has shall be, what? Taken away. Taken away. Thus Jesus spoke in parables so they wouldn't understand because they weren't really interested in the truth. They were only interested in the miracles and what could benefit them. So what is your purpose for coming to church? I should ask that question. It's not in my notes. 
What's your purpose for coming to church? Is it to know and to understand God or is it somehow so that you can get something that will benefit you without God really being in mind in there? So he is saying that if you work hard and you pay attention to the same degree, you will understand and be blessed. And if you have already been blessed, you will be blessed even more and that is what we call a truism, a truism. And if you don't work hard and you don't pay attention and your ears are full of wax and you don't listen, then your blessings will even be less. In fact, they will be taken away. That is a truism also. And if you have a gospel and you let it shine in your life, and if you don't understand it but you want to understand it and you seek to understand it, and you seek help and understanding, God will enrich your mind more so to understand this miracle truth, and it will be a blessing there. It will shine on others also. But if you have spiritual truth and you put it under a bushel, it doesn't work so well. It doesn't work so well. Psalm 119, verse 105 says this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It gives direction, guide. Just a very simple verse. You pretty much, if you memorize much scripture, that's one of them that you've memorized. It's, it's such a good verse. It really tells us where we go. How is your Bible reading coming, by the way? Are you involved with Jerry's plan? Or some plan? You're working on it, trying to understand it? 2 Peter 1.19 says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. That's expository listening again. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises. The truth is there. It is growing and it's going to grow further with time. Further with time. So interesting that a small little lamp like this in an absolutely black room will throw out a lot more light than you realize in contrast to the, to the darkness that is there. Now it comes to a second parable here, a second parable in verse 26. Parable of the seeds, secret growth. Parable of the seeds, secret growth. Growth. Now this relates to the parable we just covered and earlier on also. It says, and he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who cast his seed upon the soil. Now the seed, you remember, was the word of God. The soil was the heart of the man, the person in the first parable. It says, and he goes to bed at night and he gets up by the day and the seed sprouts and grows and how he himself does not know. The soil produces a crop by itself and first the blade and then the head and then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So what this parable is doing is it's really... Um, showing us how the word of God comes to our heart and how it comes to us and works in our lives. And notice he uses 
the kingdom of God. He uses that phrase. This is the first time it's used in these, these parables we've been looking at. We use it one, one other time as well. But the kingdom of God is like that. It's like the man who cast the seed. That'd be kind of like God, probably. We're not sure. It doesn't tell us what this man is like. He's some kind of a farmer, but he can be pictured like God who casts the seed. The seed is the word. We know that because it's already defined in other places. It's like, it's like a man who casts his seed on the soil and, uh, and then he goes to bed. He doesn't do anything more. And he sleeps and he gets up and he sleeps and he gets up and he sleeps and he gets up until the seed sprouts down there. When, when I was raised on the wheat ranch in eastern Washington, we, we would plant the seed in the fall or spring sometimes and, and we would put a lot of work into spreading it through the special equipment we had and so forth and it would get seeded and, and then you just look out over the field and all you would see is dirt with these little, kind of like little rows where the seed was planted about 12 inches apart. And it would sit there for a number of months and then my dad would always go out and check, you know, once in a while, and then it would start to come up about December, and he'd go out and he'd say, oh, there's some grain coming up. The wheat's coming up. It's maybe just an inch sticking through the soil. And a few days later, a couple inches, and a few days later, we'd always pray for snow because snow would cover it and keep it from freezing out. It was like a blanket. But then in the spring, when the snow was gone, the seed would grow and it would get green. And you could look out across those wheat fields that were quite vast, and it was a beautiful sight of the green wheat coming up and waving in the wind, and it was an amazing thing. We did zero to make it do that. Just put the seed in the ground, that's it. I mean, we did go to bed at night and so forth, but we didn't sleep all the time. We had other things to do. But you get the picture. The person who plants the seed doesn't really do anything. The seed does it itself. It's a secret process that only, I should say, the seed knows. Perhaps that isn't the best way to describe it. The farmer did nothing. The seed sprouted on its own. The blade first, and then the, the ear, and then the full grain, and it ripens, and pretty soon it turns gold out there in the wheat fields, and the sun comes up and changes the color. When it's just right, then you go out with a sickle or a combine today and harvest the grain. You harvest it here. So the farmer isn't identified. Um, the seed, though, is the word of God. And as Luke 8.12 clearly says, it is. It's defined there. Appears in that parable there. But it shows us how the seed of God's word works in our hearts. And uh, that's interesting. Psalm 19, verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eye. Yeah, somehow just the words of Scripture affect us, you know. Uh, they're there, and when they're planted, then they grow, and they change us, and we think about them. And Hebrews 4.12 is perhaps my favorite verse on this. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts it pierces as far as the division of the soul and the spirit and both the, the joints and the marrow and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why sometimes when people read the Bible, they're uncomfortable because it's a little bit cutting in places, isn't it? And I've experienced that too. I'm not, 
immune to any of that. I think that's probably how I came to Christ is because I began to understand things. The seed was there. It was given to me by others, given to me by family members, reading the Bible and, of course, in church. And among the first things I ever learned in church, which I'm not so sure how well they preached the gospel there, was the Ten Commandments. And you know the Ten Commandments will convict you really quick, right? My brother from Ukraine, not my physical brother, but a brother, pastor, was here some years ago. He spoke in our church, and he was, has a church that was in the war zone and was taken over by the enemy and eventually won back by the Ukrainian army a couple of years ago. When I was there the last time in his church in that zone where they had been under siege and they say still don't go beside the road and walk in the fields because there might be mines there but he gave me the ten commandments and uh, it hangs in our house it doesn't convict us so well though because it's in russian <laughs> but i know what those words say anyway i know what those words say and so the word does the work doesn't it the word does the work and it goes on to say that there is no creature hidden from its sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him. That's God with whom we have to do. That's Hebrews 4.13, following verse 12. It's quick and it's powerful. Uh, but, but it also comforts us, too. We don't want to get away with that without saying that. It, there's something secret about how it grows, and when you put it in your heart, it begins, to ch it begins to speak to you years later. And I've seen guys in the military who years later, they were not living for God in any sense, and they remembered some Bible verses, and it began to convict them, and probably some of them came to Christ. Martin Luther, you know who he was, the great reformer from Germany. We were over there about a year and a half ago to a conference on the anniversary, 500th anniversary. It was, the, it was the scripture that really was the thing that was opened up to the people's minds and hearts that caused the Reformation. Just the fact that they could have the Bible and understand it as it was meant to be understood. And he said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. He talks about how it had an impact on the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church and so forth. And he says, and while I slept, this is after he taught the word or drank Wittenberg beer with my friend Philip Emsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor could ever inflict such losses upon it. And I did nothing. The word did everything. The word did everything. By the way, I don't know what kind of beer he drank, but it probably wasn't too strong. And he actually preached against it. He preached against it. He preached on moderation. And he said, Christmas and Pentecost mean nothing to you Germans. He said, it's just beer. <laughs> and he was after them. And he exhorted them to be sober examples, especially the Christians. And some of them didn't do too good at that. Well, anyway, that was Martin Luther. So the word has its own power. It's different. That's why the Bible, that's why there are more Bibles sold every day and every year than any other book in history. And it's forever been that way since they started printing them. They don't even put it on the top uh, 10 whatever best-sell books because it's always way above the highest one. So they don't even bother to put it up there. Uh, it's amazing. Scripture has that power. 
People tried to burn it and bury it and throw it away and ban it and so forth, but it still burns in the heart. Parable number three. Parable number three now. This parable is the last one. It is the parable of the kingdom that is like a mustard seed. The kingdom, again, is mentioned here. The kingdom of God. And he says it's like a mustard seed here. This parable is mentioned in Matthew 13 also. Some of these parables are mentioned in the other Gospels, the, the, what we call the synoptic Gospels, the first three Gospels. Uh, but I believe the second parable is not mentioned in any of the other Gospels except this one, and probably because of its nearness to the first parable that we looked at. But this is a parable about the kingdom. It's like a mustard seed here. Um, good place to conclude, and it's kind of a concluding parable in this little stretch here. And uh, it's very important to understand what he's saying. So it, it's the kingdom of God he's talking about here. And he says, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present? How are we going to explain the kingdom of God? He's speaking to his, his 12 guys now and probably some other, some other disciples. There's a group, there's a small group, not the big group anymore. We don't know how many were there, if it was just dozens or hundreds, but it certainly wasn't thousands anymore because it said they left. Is how are we going to present the idea of the kingdom here? In verse 31, he presents the idea of it being like a mustard seed. It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes a larger than life, larger uh, than all the other garden plants, Form, uh, and, and forms large branches, large strong branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Talking about the kingdom of God, kind of like a big tree that comes from a mustard seed. I did a little bit of research. I don't think I've seen a mustard seed, but in uh, the Middle East, they have them there and other places. We probably have some here in different places. But they say, generally speaking, the seed is... Um, about a one-tenth in diameter of a millimeter, I think it is. That's what they were saying. It's very small. Just barely see it, you know. It's about half the size of a BB for a BB gun, or perhaps less than that. And, and some are kind of yellow and some are kind of black. They're different colors depending on the type of mustard plant that it was. And people say, well, the Bible's not correct because there are seeds that are smaller out there than the mustard seeds, and that's true. But this was the smallest seed in Palestine. So it was one that people understood. They would know right away. Oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. They knew what that was. It was a very small seed. And, 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 so, and so we have the idea of this mustard seed. And how big did they get to be? Not terribly big, but not like our trees out here, but uh, some as high as 20, 30 feet in the same width, but mostly a little bit smaller. And so the the picture I put on the front of your bulletin is not a mustard plant, by the way. That is a tree that is in Hawaii that I took a picture of years ago. And if you look really, really, really hard, you'll see my wife in that picture. You see how massive that tree was. It just kind of gets the, gives you the idea of what he's talking about here. So don't get lost in the details. Just see the overall point that's being made here. And so... The implication is that God's word is working and it's growing and it starts out small, but it ends up big here. 
and it's encouraging. This is a very encouraging verse at the end. The picture's the church growing uh, from Jesus being born in a manger in a far-off place where people didn't even know about it and weren't understanding. And then eventually uh, Jesus grows and he has his disciples and he has his three-year ministry and he has the thousands that are following him like we see right here and so forth. It's, it's kind of like that the birds of the air are beginning to flock to him, to it. Now this tree, the tree pictures the kingdom of God. They're flocking to it, kind of like the nations. This is kind of the traditional view of what this means. I think it's correct. The nations that will come to the word of God, to Christ, to the church eventually as it grew. And remember, the church started out very small in Jerusalem when Peter preached at Pentecost and it was pretty much his first sermon there. And people, he didn't even give an invitation, but they came by the hundreds to ask, what must we do to be saved? And that happened then regularly after that. So we have 3,000 people saved. And then a few chapters later, we have 5,000 in the church. And then they go to Samaria. And then they go to other parts of the world through people who read the Bible and don't understand it, but it's someone explains it to them while they're in the chariot. And then they go down to Africa, and it continues on down there. And some of the disciples went to India. This is all after Christ was, was um, uh, died on the cross and then was resurrected. And ultimately to the consummation of all things in the kingdom. That's the end. So the, in the big tree that comes from this little tiny seed that you couldn't even see hardly. And the birds are nesting underneath the shade, the protection of it. Trees are for shade, obviously. And, and I really pray that in this year, 2019, that, that our church will become more understanding of that. Our theme is, the building project is for the generations to come, but that means that this generation has to do something. And the birds here are setting underneath the tree. They're nesting under there. They're, they're relaxing. But that's not for today. That's for the future. We're to be busy about doing the work. We're busy about carrying the gospel out. Not a fortress mentality. So, how's that worked out over the centuries since the time of Christ? Well, most religions rise and then they fall, and that's about it. They don't last that long. Christianity is still growing. I checked with the Pew Research Center on this, and they say that Christianity is still growing very fast. Since 1910, it has quadrupled, almost quadrupled in the number of people who claim to be followers of Christ. I know that there are some who are following perhaps some strange doctrines, but in general, these people are the ones that claim it. Kind of hard to figure that all out and know where it is, but nevertheless, it's a very large number. So, world population as of November, just a few two months ago, was 7.7 .7 billion people as of November. And it was estimated that 31% of those people have some claim that they are following Christ. You say, what about Islam? They're a distant second. Only 23%. 31 versus 23%. In fact, 
It's interesting, the fertility rate of Christians worldwide is 2.7%, it's 2.1 to even just stay even, versus 2.5 for the rest of the world. So Christians are more fertile. We're talking about the um, abortion movement here. In spite of all of that, we're, we're still producing more children. And generally speaking, children of Christians often follow that, not all cases. We know that because it's an individual thing. You don't come in on a family pass into heaven. You come in on your own repentance and faith in Christ. So Graham Scroggie is a great, he's really a great Bible teacher, said, do not despise small things. The seed. Do not despise small things. And that's the, that's the, uh, the seed there that grows to a big tree. Verse 33, Jesus said, with many such parables, this is only just a few of them, there were many, many more. We don't even have all of them in the scripture, just the ones we need. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. In other words, as, as much as they could take, he would give to them. These were his disciples. These were the 12 people that would turn the world right side up, not upside down, but right side up. And, um, and, and they're still doing it. But it's the word that is doing it there. It's, it's a wonderful thing under the big tree we see there. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. He explained it to them. And, and that's the blessing. It's still working that way today in the church. It was meant to be that way. That's why we're going to First Timothy in our men's group because it talks about the leaders and how we as parents and family leaders and church leaders are to be able to teach the word. We learn from others who have taught it before and we benefit from them and so forth. But in some cases, it's done privately. And that's the way Jesus had to do it with his people because the big group, not interested. So he just taught the small groups. No one would ever think that that movement started in Bethlehem, a little nowheresville, would ever be anything, anything like this. But we're not to rest under the tree now. We are to be busy preaching, proclaiming, sharing, and witnessing. And let me encourage you as you go out today, be sure to grab that sheet about how to uh, preach, how to uh, um, pray, ex not expositorily, how to pray evangelistically. And there's some verses there, it's very simple. Place for you to write a list of people that God brings to your mind that you can pray for. We need to be in prayer. This is our Jerusalem, right here. And uh, from here, the gospel goes out in other places. But this is our responsibility right here for the generations to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace today. We pray that we would understand uh, with the conviction of the Spirit of God inside of our hearts that the miracle of the growth of Christianity is a miracle because Jesus paid the price in full on the cross. And that all we really need to do is come to a place of recognizing our sinfulness, as the Ten Commandments would clearly teach us, and repenting and turning to him for 
humbly turning to him for forgiveness. He promised that he would forgive. He promised he would bring us to life. We don't know how that works. That's part of the secret. We don't know why the Spirit touches us when we read the Word, but it's part of the secret. I would pray that if there's any that are confused about these things, we would love to explain it, just as Jesus did to his own disciples and apostles who were following him. May we grow in that sense and may we look forward to that day when we can sit under the great tree of the kingdom with the Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.